the day that we live on in infamy. President Kennedy was a right line. Good day to be living and a good day to die. He led to the slaughter like a sacrificial lamb. We are back. William Sipich is a civil rights attorney. He's a political activist, and most interesting to us, he's also a JFK researcher. Back in 2014, he joined us on this program to talk about some of the mysteries surrounding Lee Harvey Oswald. Very recently, he's discovered something that I found very interesting, and I wanted him to share with you, the listening audience. And it's my pleasure to be able to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Bill Simpich. Thank you. Good to be with you, Doug. Now, I, I received an email a while back uh, that it, it kind of opened my eyes to um, something you discovered, I guess, on the website that is uh, maintained by the Mary Farrell organization. That's right. Uh, I was uh, on there late the other night, and I spent a lot of time posting uh, new pseudonyms and cryptonyms, which are aliases of CIA officers and, and their agents and people like that, and programs as well. Those are the cryptonyms a lot of the time as well. In any case, uh, I saw this one called MX Windfall. As soon as I opened it up, I knew in two seconds who it was. They didn't have his name on there, but there's not many people at the University of Rhode Island who teach courses on the Kennedy case, in particular, the controversy about lone gunmen versus multiple gunmen side of things. The person that you're, that you're about to reveal, I think, uh, was someone I, I saw give a lecture many years back and he was purporting to explain a lot of physics uh, that allegedly proved that in the case there was two bullets, only two bullets, and therefore, you know, the Warren Commission held water pretty nicely. But turns out that's not the case. It's not. The same gentleman uh, sponsored a metallurgy seminar, if you will, on the NAA test, which is neutron activation, and said this is final solution to uh, proving that Oswald uh, killed Kennedy. Well, you know, of course, you know, many people who know this case know that you can't, including the chief of police in Dallas, know that nobody's ever been able to put that gun in his hand because it was found on the sixth floor behind some boxes. And, and it was cold, as far as I can hear. Nobody said it was a hot gun. And they didn't want to test to see if it had been recently fired. They didn't want to know what they'd find out. And so Ken Ron is a liar just on that. But he's also <laughs> a liar in terms of everything else he's done uh, regarding this case. And I'm really disappointed because when I first ran into this guy, I read his website and I go, oh, here's an eminently decent, fine human being who's just on the other side of the fence than me. Uh-huh. And now I find out he's got a CIA case officer. You know, he's not just a source. He, and he's not spying on the Kennedy community that I could prove. All this document says, and it's quite a bit, is that he has what's called non-official cover officers, which is a term of art for people who are not sponsored by an embassy. They're, you know, they run among businessmen. They don't have the kind of traditional government cover, uh, like being a consul, that kind of thing. Right. And uh, so it's a problem for them. I mean, their lives are actually in greater danger than your ordinary officer because they don't have the same de- degree of protection. They're kind of cowboys, if you will. Anyway, they've got this cowboy, Ken Ron, running with them, who was doing what was called economic spying in the 90s on uh, nuclear physics subjects in Russia. And, you know, this is after the Cold War. We were trying to dominate the economy, and the CIA is casting desperately for a way to continue its existence because they don't have a justification with the Cold War over. Well, right. So, <laughs> so they say, let's spy on our allies, you know. <laughs> 
and give economic pennies to the corporations. I mean, it was horrific. I'm sure it's still going on. They never stopped doing it. They added it to their bag of tricks. Yeah, we think Ken Ron was running running around the Soviet Union. I know part of what they were trying to do, supposedly, The old was... Soviet Union. It's now broken up, right? It's 95. Uh, I'm sorry. So he was he was involved in, in not the old USSR, because that was that was been gone now since 1990, but he was in Russia doing things nuclear. That's right. Studying okay. things nuclear, finding out secrets, giving them to the government. And who's paying for this? The taxpayer. Who's benefiting? The corporation. Are we allowed to vote on this? No. Why not? Because they don't want us to. I think it's fair to say the leading candidate for the uh, mystery of what happened to our 35th president uh, has always been the CIA. And it's been my experience over the years that they seem to be very interested in the case. And what I saw in the document, they didn't necessarily say they were sponsoring to do any of this JFK work, but they certainly seem to have approved of it. They said best way to warm him up is to chat him up about this case, which is a sideways way of saying, let's pick his brain a little bit without putting it in writing. Well, we were scheduled today, and we will do this momentarily, to speak with uh, Stu Wexler, a very fine researcher. And when I got wind of this, I, I started talking to Stu, and I had forgotten the fact that he and Ken Ron were kind of like, you know, mutual nemeses of each other. And that uh, <laughs> we, need, we need to go to Stu shortly to give us a little bit more background about what he had to go through in battling with this guy. And you should have a great time because Stu busted him on neutron activation analysis. That field of analysis is no longer in the scientific bag of tricks because it's Stu and, and people like to. Yeah. I mean, they, they, this is something the FBI was using up till, I guess, what, fairly recently. Into the 2000s. Well, Bill, thanks for the update. Thanks for the research you have done. Where can people find this at Mary Farrell? I think it's 104, 10328. 10326, you told me last time. <laughs> That's the one you should go with. And, and the then, last digits are 10082. Yes, yes. So people can go to the Mary Farrell website, which is a really fine website for anybody interested in what happened to JFK, and uh, noodle around there and, and pull up the document that you found with those numbers. And last word is that you, uh, when you do it, uh, you might find it on the advanced search, but there's an alternate search called a RIF search, R-I-F, for record identification. You, that's the easy way to find it. William Simp, it's just a pleasure. It's been six years since we had you on. Let's get you on a lot sooner than that, because I know you've got a lot of cool things we could talk about. Oh, well, I love this kind of thing. I love anything that goes after the government for hiding things from the American people. So thanks. Appreciate it. All righty. Bye-bye. Parkland Hospital, only six more miles. You got me dizzy, Miss Lizzie. You fill me with lead. Magic bullet of yours has gone on my head I'm just a patsy like Patsy Klein Never shot anyone from in front or behind As alluded to a moment ago, we're now going to go back east to New Jersey, actually, to speak with an award-winning educator, a political activist, and another JFK researcher we have great respect for. We've been wanting to get him on this show for quite some time. In fact, we had him scheduled to talk about some documents he discovered and some people he looked into. But in the meantime, this whole Ken Ron thing turned up. And um, I know that Stu's going to have a, a thing or two to say about Mr. Ron. Stu Wexler, welcome to Radio Parallax. Thank you for having me on. Now... 
it was sort of funny that I was doing some preliminary work to talk about what we were going to talk about per the original plan, and this whole Ken Ron thing came up, and I, I somehow had lost sight of the fact that you two guys went at it over the years. If there's such a thing as an arch nemesis or a chief <laughs> rival, for about seven years from the very late 1990s through about the mid-2000s, uh, Ken and I went at it all the time. It was practically every day. It was at conferences. On at least three occasions, we were sort of like dueling conference debaters, so to speak. I had grown to be deeply suspicious of Ken Ron and being somebody of bad faith. Mm-hmm. And I'm not the kind of person who typically entertains the idea that people who disagree with me in the Kennedy assassination area are disinfo agents. CIA people. I usually mock that. Yeah, right. But I did have some ideas that he, there's something a little bit off with him. Well, now we know there's quite a bit off with him. Yes. That is absolutely... To, to know that I was going toe-to-toe with somebody who was a source in some way, shape, or form for the CIA the entire time I was going at it with him is pretty wild. And, you know, if we had more time today, which we don't, I would throw in a few uh, anecdotes that I can that I can put in there to round out this story of um, how we sometimes think we're dealing with somebody who may have ulterior motives, and, and, and sometimes they are. We don't have time for that today. Instead, I want to focus on the fact that you dealt with the science of what Ken Ron was trying to put over, the fact that he was claiming that he had some very, very, very hard science physics-type stuff, proving that it had to be Oswald because the lead in these bullets could only have come from two and two bullets alone. And it turns out you were trying to point out that his methods were flawed and that this was bunk. Yeah, so for most of the time I was going back and forth with Ken Ron, he was arguing that the analysis of the bullet lead from the fragments that were recovered at the crime scene later on when they cleaned up the limo and from the bodies, accounted for two, and the key thing is only two bullets in Ken Ron's estimation. He was rehashing and actually adding a lot of, ultimately, BS to what somebody else, a scientist by the name of Vincent Gwynn, said in the late 70s to the House Select Committee on Assassination. And it turns out that not only was Ken Ron wrong. The end result of some of the work I did, really the late great scientist Cliff Spiegelman and his colleague Bill Tobin and others, I was just a hanger-on who got them involved, and some other scientists, Rick Randich and Pat Grant, was not only to to, to just debunk the Kennedy assassination, Kennedy assassination was the vehicle, the entire science or forensic science of comparative bullet lead analysis, which is what Ron was touting, is literally no longer practiced by any single lab in the world, prosecution or defense. The science is complete garbage. Well, Bill, uh, I think doffed his hat in your direction, and and I do as well, Stu, because it turns out a bunch of pseudoscience was in the courtroom uh, uh, getting people convicted of crimes, and it was just it was just nonsense. Right, because it rests on the notion, and and the Kennedy assassination, triply so, that there's something unique about bullet lead that allows you, in most cases, to match a bullet to a box. In the Kennedy assassination, Oswald uh, had the misfortune, according to Ron and others, 
of choosing the only brand of ammunition in the world fabricated and packaged in such a way that you can match a fragment to an individual bullet, much less to a whole box of bullets. But the reality is, is that thousands of boxes of bullets across the country have bullets with the exact same chemical profile in their lead, and that's because when they design bullets, they deliberately make it that way so the bullets fly true and in the same way every time. And that should have been known and you know explained to juries for, for a few decades. And unfortunately, it wasn't until these group of scientists I mentioned took it down. But while it was going down, Ken Ron was trying to argue something, go even further than Vincent Gwynn, go further than anyone in the field of forensic bullet lead analysis and take it to levels that, you know, he would claim, you know, one in a million shot that it could be anything other than two bullets from Oswald's gun. And it was just absurd. And one other thing I understand about something else making it absurd was that it was claimed that you could take literally one bullet, a very small piece of a very big batch of lead where they took a bunch of, I suppose, you know, car batteries, sources of lead, put it in a giant cauldron, melted it down from different sources. And, of course, it's got different amounts of impurities in it. Unless you mix that lead unbelievable thoroughness there's going to be a certain lumpiness in the character like if you go to your yogurt shop and you mix one yogurt with another there's going to be differences in which which spoonful you take out of it well they actually do an incredibly thorough job of trying to melt the lead down to get it consistent from from bullet to bullet but what what Randish and Grant argued it is on a, on a very microscopic level there are hot zones for some of these elements they look for, particularly antimony, and that some of what Vincent Gwynn was seeing as unique about these bullet leads was that he was just catching those small little impurities. We're talking at the microscopic level. But on the bigger issue is what Cliff Spiegelman and Bill Tobin did and the work that I was connected with was they showed using other boxes of Mandelbrot-Organo ammo that it's the same story with Mercano ammo as with all other ammo, as you'd expect. Right. Like, Oswald didn't pick the only ammo in the world <laughs> this doesn't apply to. That a large number of bullets in every box share incredibly similar chemical profiles. You can't distinguish any bullet from other bullets in the box. And further, you can't distinguish boxes from other boxes. Thousands and thousands of boxes across the country will have bullets that match up chemically in the same way. Well, I think we can say uh, definitely, Stu, that there's problems with the science here. Yeah, and Ken Ron was intellectually dishonest in how he presented his work that go beyond the fundamental problems with the science. He took a speech I made, asked for the original copy, and then completely misrepresented, said things that I literally crossed out and claimed that I said them. (laughs) He participated in a conference where he claimed to have been peer-reviewed and wound up presenting what turned out to be a bunk peer review. It wasn't really a peer review. And he knew all this. So he was presenting very intellectually dishonest, bad faith argument. And now in light of what Bill found, you have to wonder where was that coming from? Well, that's a valid question. Do you think uh, some of his uh, the, his bosses in the Central Intelligence Agency were very happy with him doing this, or were they just letting him have at it and looking the other way? Or do you think we can even, we'll ever know? I'm not sure we'll ever know. 
I, I inclined to think he was he was doing it on his own, but I also wonder how much it biased his output. Like, how much was his determination to defend the government position biased by his association with a government agency? Well, we need to have you come back and talk a little bit about, again, interesting things about the CIA and the JFK research community and about some documents you and Larry Hancock and Malcolm Blunt found regarding some very curious characters in the case. That's going to be worth uh, spending some time on. Sounds good. Thank you for having me on. All right, Stu Wexler. Glad to have you on, and we're going to do it again uh, soon, my friend. Play the bloodstained banner, play murder All across the country in past weeks, there have been demonstrations for civil rights. This is uh, something I'm sure you're well aware of, dear listener. We would like to suggest, at least I personally would like to suggest, that these protesters pick up yet another issue, which they should be, I think, raising hell about. Last week, Georgia had a statewide primary election. The election was marred by chaos at polling places, with some voters forced to spend virtually the entire day in line. Many Georgians said they applied for absentee ballots but never received them and were forced to wait at precincts that were woefully understaffed. Georgia spent $106 million on new electronic voting machines after a federal judge deemed the old system vulnerable to hacking. But dozens of the new machines malfunctioned or were missing this week. The worst problems were in Atlanta and environs with large African-American communities. And in case you think that is a coincidence, dear listener, you'd be incorrect. The Republican Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, blamed local officials saying they should have found more young poll workers willing to work through the epidemic. Georgia has been plagued by allegations of voter suppression, and this week's debacle could foreshadow chaos in the presidential election and a competitive Senate race in November. This deliberate disenfranchisement of black voters is something, again, they should be raising hell about. We've been talking about this subject on this show from, I I think, our fourth or fifth show uh, featured a discussion of voting chicanery. And we talked a year ago about how we probably should get Greg Pallast back on this program, and I think that's more true now than ever. Surprisingly... Surprisingly, Joe Biden has been doing very well in polling vis-a-vis Donald Trump. The Economist has taken a look at the presidential campaign, noting that they're launching their statistical forecast, which gives Donald Trump a one-in-five shot at re-election. Noted The Economist, four months ago, Donald Trump's odds of winning a second term had never looked better. After an easy acquittal in his impeachment trial, his approval ratings had reached its highest level in three years and was approaching the upper 40s range that delivered re-elections to George W. Bush and Barack Obama. Unemployment was at a 50-year low, setting him up to take credit for a strong economy. And Bernie Sanders, a self-described socialist, had won the popular vote in each of the first three Democratic primary contests. But, notes the magazine, even by Mr. Trump's frenetic standards, the tumble in his political stock since then has been remarkably abrupt. Now, yours truly has had a hobby of making electoral predictions dating back many decades, and, you know, I, I must say I, I got pretty good at it. And you don't have to be a political genius to do that. You just have to look at the polling state by state, because we don't elect presidents based on their popular vote 
coast to coast. I think you're well aware of that by now, but on the basis of the Electoral College, state by state. If you go to websites like 270towin.com, you can actually do an interactive map of the United States and see where things are shaping up as regards current polling. And if you do that, like The Economist did, you find out that Joe Biden, were the election held today, would be the next president. The key to Donald Trump's election over Hillary Clinton was the fact that he surprisingly carried Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. All those states currently lean to Biden. In addition, Biden is ahead in Florida. Now, this is remarkable news uh, for Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. Biden looked dead in the water not very long ago. And of course, there is that small matter of the Trump mishandling of the COVID-19 pandemic, which has now claimed 120,000 lives and in the process, perhaps 30 million jobs. And of course, protests sparked by the killing of George Floyd convulsed cities across America. Mr. Trump's callous response has widened the empathy gap separating him from Mr. Biden. Make a note, Mr. Miller, we need to get Greg Palace back on the show. In the meantime, let's quote from an interview he conducted for Alternet.org. Piece by Chauncey DeVega noted that Biden leads Donald Trump by an average of eight percentage points in national polling, which, of course, doesn't tell you much. But some surveys show Biden ahead of Trump by as many as 14 percentage points. Rather more importantly, he enjoys huge leads among the Democratic Party's key constituents, including black voters, Latinos, and other non-whites, college-educated white women, and younger voters. Polls also show Joe Biden making gains among older white voters, a group that consistently supports Republicans and has been especially loyal to Trump. They note that Biden also leads Trump in key battleground states such as Michigan and Wisconsin. It does appear that Joe Biden, being a rather older fellow, is a little bit more popular with older folks. That could be huge in many of the key battleground states. Hillary Clinton turned out to have not been so popular with the elderly. This piece notes that in their most recent conversations, Greg Palast warned that Joe Biden's chances against Donald Trump are worse than the polls suggest because millions of Democrats will have their votes thrown out on Election Day. Moreover, many of those voters will have no idea that their votes were purged and therefore not counted. Palace explains how the Republican Party has refined its strategy of voter suppression, voter intimidation, and vote theft in elections across the country. Palast also highlights how the planned chaos during the recent Georgia Democratic primaries is a preview of how the Republican Party intends to steal the 2020 presidential election for Donald Trump. Alternate asked Palace about the Democratic primary in Georgia, saying that people are calling it a preview to the sabotage, chaos, and interference that Donald Trump and the Republicans will be using against Biden and the Democrats in the general election. They asked, is that conclusion correct? To which Greg Palace said, absolutely, and it's going to be worse. The Republicans have been practicing this since 2018 in Georgia. What happened there was a test run for the entire nation. Brian Kemp won in November 2018 because of mass voter purges. Brian Kemp has been playing these games with voter rolls for seven years. He is the governor of Georgia, and he stole that election from Stacey Abrams, the first black woman to run for that office.
said Palace. Why were all those people out there in the middle of the COVID-19 virus? Why were they waiting in line for a voting machine? The answer is that millions of Georgians asked for mail-in ballots, and then hundreds of thousands of people did not get their ballots and were not told why. The answer is that these voters were purged, half a million of them. If you're purged, then you do not receive a mail-in ballot. If you do not get your ballot, you cannot mail it back in. Said Palace, in Georgia and Ohio and who knows how many other states, those state officials will not tell me what their rules are, ballots are no longer being sent to people on the so-called inactive list. That is very strange. Inactive means you missed the last two elections in 2016 and 2018. According to federal law, it is actually in bold type in the National Voter Registration Act. A person cannot lose their right to vote by not voting. If you fail to vote, these states are not going to send you a ballot, and you will not know why. Then it's too late, and then you're forced to physically go to the polls to vote. There you will join all the black and brown folks who also did not receive their ballots. All of you will be forced to wait in long lines. Said Palace, in 2020, we're heading into a disaster, and it's a very well-designed and intentional one. The Republicans thought it all through and tested it in Wisconsin and Georgia and elsewhere. In 2020, when Trump is up for re-election, this chaos will be everywhere. Anyway, if you're not familiar with the work of Greg Palace, we would suggest that you pull him up on radioparallax.com. Unfortunately, the stuff we talked to him about years and years ago sadly, is all still relevant. I do need to quote the conclusion of this piece, though. Palace said, Joe Biden's lead right now is not only completely meaningless, but something far worse. It's putting the Democrats to sleep. There were almost 7.9 million ballots that were either not counted or where voters were blocked from voting in 2016. If you were to call these voters up like a pollster, many of them would tell you they were voting for Hillary. But these same people did not know that they would be blocked from voting on Election Day or that their votes would be thrown out. Said Palace, the Democrats must confront these structural impediments, many of which are driven by white supremacy, if they're going to be truly free and fair elections in the U.S. All right, I'm told I've got about a minute left, which is not nearly enough time to discuss Margaret Talbot's article in The New Yorker titled, the rogue experimenters. I only have time for a paragraph or two on the subject of insulin. Noted Margaret Talbot, in 1996, Eli Lilly introduced Humalog, its synthetic version of the hormone. It was $21 for a 10-millimeter vial. During the next two decades, the retail price increased tenfold. Sanofi's Lantus and Novo Nordisk's Novolog have similarly soared in price. Eli Lilly recently announced that during the COVID-19 epidemic, it would lower the monthly out-of-pocket cost of insulin to $35. But the drug is a crucial source of revenue for the company, and the price will likely rebound. She notes that Jean Picot, a professor of chemical and biological engineering at Colorado State and the founder of the journal Synthetic Biology, told her the price of insulin is something for which there is no technical justification, no justification other than greed. It's simple to make with a large market. It should be as cheap as Tylenol. We've come a long way from 1921, 99 years ago, when Frederick Banting, a Canadian orthopedist, derived insulin from the pancreas of dogs. He sold the patent to the University of Toronto for $1, 
clearing the way for it to be mass-produced. Said Banting, insulin does not belong to me, it belongs to the world. A commendable view, and quite different from our discussion about that piece in The Atlantic about how money became the measure of anything, because yes, by the early 21st century, American society's top priority became its bottom line, with insulin going at 10 times the price of what it was selling at just 24 years ago. We'll talk more about that article in next week's show. Our thanks to Bill Simpich and Stu Wexler, a couple of fine researchers. Hope to have them again on the show sometime soon. This program was produced by Edward McMillan, whose price has not gone up tenfold in the past 24 years, though, as he likes to point out, he's as valuable as ever. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I want to know.